you see commonality in terms of what like it boils down to certain segments like freedom or choice or security or is it completely unique to the person there are themes but uh, but there's a uniqueness about it all because everyone's situation and experience obviously um, shapes them my point of difference over the years is starting to starting to disappear here oh writing yeah writing yeah i was taught how to write in the 80s because i was doing courts for um you know um financing of assets etc so I, I learned how to write and so when I started in this industry and started writing advice and I seen advisors around me who'd never had to do that before they just basically put the application in front of me and said yeah right to sign that 100 grand of life should do you and a little bit of trauma that was the way it was done right um, now they have to write it and they would write what I call a stream of consciousness and you'd read their advice and go oh my god so first ever podcast mate so to set the scene, I always like just starting off with like what people do. Yep. So how would you describe your current occupation? Like what do you do for the world, you know? Uh, that's a good question. I, um, I tend to answer that when people ask me rather glibly that I sit down and um, drink a lot of coffee and talk to people. That's <laughs> effectively, effectively the be all and end all of being a financial advisor. It's all about discussions, relationships. What, what have you learned like in terms of why what's important about money to people do you find like because we usually ask them their values like freedom security choice is what we found did you find sort of when you talk to people about their money like what is important about money to them yeah it's um it's a really really good question to even phrase it that way to them when they um, first sit down with you um, in some way to ask them that what is important about money to you and um, it's a good question because no one's probably ever asked them that, and so hmm. you you get a uh, quite an interesting reaction from people because particularly you know a lot of financial um, advice is done with um, husband and wife or partners, I, I guess to be more. Um, there you go. Yeah, yeah, Sorry. yeah. Uh, yeah, thank you. Same um, sex social marriages. Media <laughs> <laughs> good. There you go. Um, nothing controversial here, does he? Um, uh, no, but if you sit down with them and then you ask that question, and generally they'll start looking at each other and fidgeting a little bit because they haven't had a discussion at that level. Um, mm. You just, ex you know, money is important. It comes in, it pays bills. Um, but it's but then quickly people start to think, well, what does it mean for me that's important in my life? Um, and the skill of a financial advisor, I think, is to help them with that discussion or conversation to draw them out because they might start to struggle a little bit because the obvious ones are, oh, yeah, I'd like to retire. I'd like to retire at age 55 or 60. And it's like, why? Why is that important? Mm. You know, and just you can actually just keep asking that question to the um, degree where you actually are starting to get some real um, value or treasure out of these people. They're, they're telling you things that they probably hadn't really consciously known about themselves. Hmm. Um, is so. it like themes like do you do you see commonality in terms of what like it boils down to certain segments like freedom or choice or security or is it completely unique to the person um there are themes but uh, but there's a uniqueness about it all because everyone's situation and experience obviously um, shapes them um but you know a lot of people that i deal with are, are basically family people so yeah security comes into it obviously um, but, um, you know, most of my um, planning that I do for people is around retirement. So they're looking mainly for the to be secure in the knowledge that they're not going to fall off the edge of the world when they retire. I, I've, I know I've got this lump sum or whatever, a um, bunch of assets, but is it enough? That's, that's the theme that actually comes through. Is it enough? And then the next one is, how can I be confident to spend it? And will I have enough at the end of life? And um, and then another common theme is they start to get mixed up around, well, you know, we've got the kids and we'd like to ensure the kids are okay. And so that's where you come back to, well, what's what's important here? Mm. What What's your priority? Is it? 
your kids, leaving everything for your kids, or is there a priority that actually we need to enjoy life through this last period of our life and therefore the kids are important but they're not necessarily the priority? Um, And there are differences there. I mean, I've had people sit there and just look me in the eye and say, no, um, everything I've built in this world is for the benefit of my children and I want to make sure that there's a big stash of cash there for them at the end. And um, I'm like, right, okay. Um, whereas others are like, uh, my mother's a good example. She always told me um, the last dollar will be spent burying me, Dave. So there's probably very little left for you. <laughs> Was that a motivation for you? Like, um, I always find it interesting what leads a person down the journey. So my theory is that the most fulfilling thing you can do is to help a version of yourself in the world. So it's like solving a problem you've witnessed or experienced in others. Mm-hmm. So what, what do you think pulled you to finance? Um, it was people. Um, I mean, I'd, I'd started in a people-facing role when I left school as a bank teller. Oh, yeah. What was it like back then, just FYI? I'm it just was, curious. I still think it was probably one of the best roles I've ever had in my life. But oh, okay. All you had to do was count money. Um, so long as you could count to 10, you're okay, because there's only ever 10 folds in a uh, ten bills in a fold, and ten and ten folds in a bundle. Um, but the thing is, is that actually uh, you just stand there all day. It's different than today. Um, you didn't have to sell anything. You just had to make sure that people were serviced, and so they'd come in and stand in their queues, and they would be the local shopkeepers, the uh, local RSA, and the publican. Actually, we had the city council as well in those days, so they'd mm. come in with payroll. All you had, all you did all day was talk to people, and count money. Um, and I enjoyed it because, you know, um, you'd be talking about, um, it'd be amazing. You'd get to know these people over time. To start with, you might be just talking about the weather and the All Blacks and God knows what. But in time, it's like, oh, yeah, we're off to, you know, where, where or my son's done this and whatever. Hmm. It was a real people job in those days. Um, and What were um, the systems like? How did you count stuff? Did you have a ledger? What, like, I just find that stuff quite interesting. Like, it is interesting. Um, it's the days before we had computers on desks. <laughs> I'm showing my age now, aren't I? <laughs> yeah, 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 please do. Um, so you, you physically counted the cash. I, I reckon I could still probably do it as fast as I did then. Um, it was easy. You just uh, So you had your little counter and you had your little sponge and off you went. Um, and then you just had a couple of, um, they were they were paper-based um, a, um, accounting chips, really. So you'd have, you know, 100000 well, 100000 $10,000 in, and then you'd write $10,000 out. Mm. And so you'd just put those with, the, the bundle of cash would go there, those would go over there, um, and there'd be a little, um, what we called a micro-encoding room sitting behind the tellers and, and these little... Um, uh, uh, little people. <laughs> the uh, the newbies would come running out from there, and they'd grab all these entries, and they'd go in there, and they they had these um, um, what we called micro encoding machines. And so you know the old uh, bank checks and deposits mm. that had the um, ink along the bottom, the encoded mm-hmm. uh, magnetic ink. Yeah, yeah. So you had basically a machine that was about yay big, and you would just actually type the numbers in there as the account numbers and the amount of dollar value that was there and they would just go zipping through this machine bundled up sent off to data bank next wow. day these big long reports would come out and there'd be people in another division that would be reconciling everything i oh, reconcile i was gonna say there's mm. so much potential for error like oh yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no well i had a full-time job at one point prior to being a teller where i'd just spend the whole week just going through you know reconciling oh um this number doesn't this batch of uh, numbers doesn't match hmm. what the balance of that is and so you just go line by line it was very manual yeah geez it was awesome oh you loved it yeah oh i loved it yeah <laughs> okay yeah. And when it matched and didn't match I was, I was two year two two and a half years working for the bank in new zealand oh wow uh. um at age 17 i left the bank and i still look back and think that is probably one of the best jobs i ever had jeez it was just so social both internally um with staff because you know we were out in the I was out in a branch called the John Henry Centre in Henderson, which doesn't, I don't think it exists anymore. Um, but we had about 35, 40 staff there. 
<laughs> and in those days, you used to have a lot of fun. And then, as I say, as a, as a tally, um, you just used to sit there and just have conversations with people all day. And accept money and count it. Yeah. So then I go off through a corporate career. And at the and by the time I get to 40, I'm like a bit sick of the corporate career. And I think, what, what did I actually enjoy most in my career? And I'm thinking, well, when I was a teller, I enjoyed people. After that, I became a... Um, a lender in a finance um, company, and that was all about people and people in business. So I stepped back from my management career that I developed, saying I want to be someone who deals with people, actually financial advisor. In those days, actually, I started as a mortgage broker, to be honest. That was the obvious. Oh, yes, yeah, mortgage come through, broker. Come through a banking and insurance background. Debt peddler. That's what I heard someone call themselves. Debt peddler. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Well, I no longer am because I found insurance uh, and invest, investment financial planning so much more enriching. Mm. Um, and I don't want to put mortgage brokers down. They do a great job. It just um, I found more value I, that I personally was able to give more value through what I, call, I thought was the planning side of the business rather than mortgage broking is kind of more transactional in my mind. So is hmm. um, general insurance. Um, you know, you're finding a deal, um, you're trying to put it together for people, make it work. Once you get into insurance, investment, and whatnot, and um, and you know what people term financial planning, you're having to find more about person. who that person is and what their dreams and desires are, and whether then you can connect to add value to help them on that pathway. Yeah, I think off here we're talking about the value of advice, and it's quite hard to uh, articulate at times. It's like you know, there's been different studies about the the return over the long term, not because you know they're better investors just because they keep you on the path and you tend to save more and you tend to travel more those sort of things and do you think if you weren't allowed to include financial advice in the service that you provide what would you say that you provide for clients so if If, you take the finance out of it so like they might call you oh my mum's passed away and you know what would you think that is well if you take the advice out then all you have left is um, basically product, I guess. Mm. So no, know. I mean in the sense of um, so an example for me, client will call up the uh, my um, partner's got dementia. I I'm not sure what to do. I'm like, oh, this is what we plan for. Um, you know, you've got enough to cover the care, blah blah. But what the real value there was like, I am in a horrible point in my life, and I have no one else to call, right? That understands my situation and yep. is incentivized for my success. Yep. Do you think of the the in, the things outside the side pieces of the value of an advisor? Because I think they're life coaches, but money's the excuse. Mm, mm. Yeah, um, I think yeah, I've heard you use that term, life coach, before. It's and, and and I've heard people use it in the industry. There's an element of probably truth about that. It is very hard to put a tag on it because yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't really like to call myself a coach because a coach seems to me to be someone who will actually sit there and instruct you on mm. something, the best way to do it, and then you know, and and then they'll work with you to help you improve your technique or whatever it is. Um, I like to think I set people on a pathway and give them the confidence to be able to make decisions and therefore they're coming back to you um, really to to confirm that they're still on the, or reconfirm they're still on the right path, they're making the right decision or when they come to a crossroads and, you know, they may be hearing some other information or voices from somewhere out in the ether <laughs> yeah. and they're coming back to you and say, well, uh, you know, either I'm not making sense of this or this is what I think what do you think? So the you know this is kind of that trusted advisor mm. um, concept where you you you're someone that they have faith in that when they come back and sit down to talk to you, that you will give it to them straight and you'll give them some sensible and logical um, advice or <laughs> um, or context around something they're looking at. And they feel confident that you're not going to try and sell them something at that point. You and so that's the bit of our trade where you know we probably don't charge for it because that's the relationship bit, and that you know you you get very close to people. And so I can, 
you can a, a client can come to me or you can come to me and ask me to do something. It might be to you know um, uh, work out how much my money, is, how long my money is going to last in retirement, or how much I need to save to get to where I want to. That's that's you know. Um, there's advice around that, uh, there's work that I need to do, and so that's chargeable. But then you sit there and ring me two years later, oh, my husband's got dementia, we're putting him in here. You know, I'm a little bit little bit lost at the moment. I'm looking, you know, what should I be doing? And mm. how, how, does, how, how does what we've set up support that? They're coming back to you in good faith for some comfort and, and um, understanding um, of... Um, where they're at, they probably sense that you've faced this situation or something similar with clients before, so you have some value to give them. You might sit there for a half an hour, you might even go and go and visit them and have a coffee or they'll come and see you. Are you going to charge them for that conversation? Mm. No. Mm. Maybe, you know, maybe we should. I've got an interesting anecdote from many years ago sitting in front of a solicitor that actually had a wonderful way of charging for time. Oh, yeah, it was. Um, oh, it was just one of the... Uh, like, I, I was very young and it just struck me as, oh, my God, um, I can't believe he's just done that. But we were basically... Um, a boss and myself were sitting in front of a solicitor. We were, like, looking at maybe setting up some kind of referral situation in those days when I was a, um, in the finance company. Um, and in the midst of the conversation, we're sitting there like this, and his phone rings, and it's got, and this is old style 1980s mm-hmm. stuff. So the little lights come up, and he goes, "Oh, excuse me," click, and then he immediately presses another button, click, and onto the speaker he goes, "Excuse me, guys, better take this, Mrs. Smith." So anyway, he spends ten minutes asking after her family and how is she, etc. And in the end, oh, what what was it that you were wanting from me? Oh, I was just chasing up on that uh, letter that you were going to send to me. She says, oh, yeah, no, that's with the secretary. It'll be out next week. Cool, thank you. Click. Presses the button. Out comes a little ticker tape. Rips it off, puts it there. And I'm like, what's that? He says, oh, I'm just charging for my time. <laughs> <laughs> he'd spent he'd spent ten minutes actually asking her about how she was and her family and and how her holiday was. She she spent thirty seconds at the end asking him for what she wanted, and he charged her for the full ten minutes. Probably charged it for court, the full quarter of an hour. Mm. And I thought, wow, that's really cutthroat. Yeah. Now I don't. I'm not saying all solicitors work like that, <laughs> but I just remember at that time that really stuck with me. That actually this guy makes sure that every minute's paid for. Well, it's interesting, like no one really wins in the charging for time because, you know, you're limited by the amount of time in your day to service clients. And if you're charging proportionate, maybe you could charge 350 an hour a divorce lawyer, $1,000 an hour. You, mm. But there's a cap. And then there's also a disincentive for the client to want support. I always look at it like behavior, like how you always kind of need an excuse to help be helpful to clients. You know, and I always wonder is like, how can you incentivize them wanting support? And one is you need to be proactive. And the other one is you don't want to punish them for getting advice, which would be the cost. Yep. Yep. So what have, what have you found is quite helpful in one, people seeing value in the advice and also two, actually wanting more advice? Um, well, that is, I think that's just basically being yourself. Mm. At the end of the day... Um, you bring your you, you bring your own sense of self and values to the table, your own personality. Um, you know, I, I I became an authorized financial advisor in two thousand and nine or two thousand and ten when it first um, when the first set of regs came through. Um, one of the things that uh, was controversial at that stage is that suddenly you had to disclose how you earned money by having this conversation with people and of course people were very nervous about that around um, disclosure of commissions and uh, and life insurances and um, asset under management charges or investment management fees um, on the investment side. Um, It never seemed to be a difficult conversation because for me um, and never has been because actually when you sit down for the first time with someone you, you create an impression with someone. At the end of it, they go, this guy understands me. I actually quite like him. Or they might have an opposite view. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Um, at that point, uh, you're able, you know, I can sit down for someone who's come to see me for, you know, whether it's half an hour, hopefully an hour or so, have a conversation with them, find out about them, at the end of it go, this is what I can do for you, this is how much I'll charge, um, or this is where I may um, earn the money um, in some other form if it's a commission, if you talk, if there's some life insurance involved or something like that, that's how we get paid. Um I've never had anyone question if they want to work with me. I've never had anyone question or even try to negotiate a fee um, or a commission or a commission rebate or whatever. They're just like, oh, sweet. Mm. This guy's got something to offer me. That's what it costs. Um, And so the the difficulty I think we have, um, probably my generation of advisors particularly, is actually are are we charging full value for what we do? Because... For, for many, uh, I mean, I came into the industry around a time when um, uh, it was trans- transitioning, really. They called themselves financial advisors, but they were insurance advisors. And then you had the investment advisors. They were, you know, and then there's guys in the middle that kind of did a little bit of the both. But I kind of looked and thought a lot of these guys are salespeople. Mm. If I go back, you know, I started 2000. Um, and that, and that didn't mean they were doing a bad thing, but they were selling more than they were advising. Mm. But they had a moniker called a financial, calling themselves a financial advisor. And to me, I'm like, well, an advisor's giving advice, surely. And in order to give advice, you, you want to give something to people. And some of that's going to be chargeable and some of it isn't. You just have to accept that. Yeah, we... Um, did that answer the question? I'm yeah, no, that. I think it did. I, I was just thinking as well, like, so I was one of those people um, in funeral insurance. I got this job oh, yes. yeah. way back when, and they're like, oh, you can call yourself an advisor. What do you mean I can call myself an advisor? Yeah, just pay 500 bucks, um, do some compliance thing, which took me an hour. And now I'm an advisor, so I call people up. And I'm, like, oh, I'm a registered financial advisor from such and such. And I didn't give advice. I just asked them, what do you want? And they're like, oh, this. And then I did a pitch. Yep. And we were signing up like 13 people a week. Um, I don't know the advice I was giving. Like I don't know with the what was right for them. I try to do it ethically. Yes. You just come in though, and they just tell you that you got to do this. And now all of a sudden, it's tricky as well for advising firms now because that model it's hard to bring someone in just to sell insurance mm. and to keep them motivated and to keep them going, and then to attract people. Now it takes we're talking off here like maybe eight months to get a qualification. Yep. To now give advice. Yep. So the standard of advice is good. Yes. But then you're comparing them to the experience of me just flogging calls, just feel like, hey, yeah. buy this. But, you know, that, that model in my mind is perfectly fine if that's what people understood that they were, um, they were buying into. Yeah. You know, um, there's, nothing, uh, there's nothing inherently wrong in my mind with someone walking into a bank branch and being sold um, whatever it is, a term deposit or whatever. Mm. Um, on a transactional basis. I mean, you, you're coming in and asking for it. In the modern world, um, when people are, are calling themselves financial advisors, there's more there's more regulation around what we should be doing, um, and there's the code, and there's all the um, all the ethics and the moral um, uh, um, standards around that, which are great. Um, Equally, there must be a place in the industry somewhere for pure transactional business where someone just goes in and says, I've got 100 grand here, Mr. Banker. Give, mm. me, the, give me the best uh, 12-month rate you can give me. Um, do they have to write a statement of advice for that? I'm, I don't work for banks. I don't know how they work. But it would seem to me that that's a lot of work for, um, for, for what's a pretty simple transaction. Yeah, there's, there's some grey areas. So... Mm. Um, qualifying financial entity, they call themselves. Yeah. So what you're enabled to do is you, you're this big bank, you have a lower bar of competency for the people that come in yep. as long as you stay within these boundaries of the advice that you give. Yeah. But it's a very hard model. Like, So I come from the perspective of young advisor comes in, not getting paid too much, um, but then taking years to accumulate something that compensates, you know, the, how little business I had initially. <laughs> yep, yep. So I come from, oh, you're not paying me much. 
And then the other side of the visit part of owning the business and being like, okay, this person's not profitable for years. How do I attract someone that takes eight months to get qualified and might not even have the sales skills, might not be able to do well, might not even be profitable for five years for the business. I don't know. Yeah. So what, what would, what's it like being a financial advising firm? Because people will be like, oh, you're charging too much. Or, you know, like, oh, these advisors, this and that. Like, mm. what, what's it actually like um, from the back end, you know, getting business or attracting staff? And yeah. is it, do you know of anyone that got over 10 staff members? You know what I mean? Like, it's. Oh, look, um, in the, in the uh, distribution group, um, that we used to be part of, there were some very, very large businesses. I've hmm. always worked in a small business. Um, I started uh, my business, Financial Health, um, in 2005. And myself and another advisor left a large business, set ourselves up, um, and there was only the two of us. My wife, I think, came on at one board at, at on board at one point um, and worked for us for four or five years. But we felt that we had a model where we could do everything ourselves and with the help of technology that would that would suffice um as time went on we found that actually no that 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 you need people around you so staff are important where do you find them from very difficult when you're a small business you um, particularly an advisor is probably only uh, in the early years earning enough to basically put the food on the table at home um, maybe they're paying off some debt around their business if they've managed to acquire some da- um, client base from either a retiring advisor or somewhere. Um, and um, and there's all the office expenses. Um, you know, I, I can honestly say that uh, it wasn't until probably about 12 years in that I felt that I was actually earning um, a, subs- a substantive enough salary to make it Mm. To have said the last 10 years have been worthwhile. It was subsistence living for the first five or six years because what I earned went first into the business and then what was left, that's what you took home. Mm. Um, I was fortunate that I'd put myself in a fairly good financial position before starting that business so that I had you know, uh, enough equity in my life that I had a massive overdraft that would actually get me through those times when the cash flow just wasn't there. Um, so you had there was basically just this big negative cash flow for I can remember five or six years um, for two of us setting up a business. Um, I kind of look back and wonder how we survived. Yeah. Um, I don't know how we survived. We just had enough equity to get through. But you continue because you can see you're doing good and you believe in what you're doing. And if you have that belief, there's. Also, I think an underlying confidence and whatnot that at some point it will pay, and it'll and and you can see people in the industry around you that are doing very well. Mm. They generally have um, they, they generally fall into two categories. They've been there long enough where they've built up that business around them, um, and um, and so you know they've I guess my path it's the long path. Um, um, it's a slow burn to the riches for want, want a bit of a word, sometimes you see these young dynamic people come in that are just super salespeople. I don't know whether it's the right word, but they just, like you look at the volumes that they're able to go through and you think, how the hell are they doing it? One, where are they finding this business? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And two, how are they doing it so quickly? What's the trick? And of course, in the back of your mind is, are they actually doing it well enough? Mm. Um, are they... Are they actually truly building a, um, a a trusted advisor relationship with everyone? I mean, you go and talk to any of their clients, and none of their clients would say they had a bad experience. Hmm. But is it the best experience that they could have had if it if if the model had been different? And I'm not saying that model's wrong. I'm just saying it's actually there's just different ways that people have made the made success in this. Right now, we're a medium sized business at Accelerate. Um, three um, partners, equal partners, myself, um, Jared, and Scott. Um, we pretty much under the new regulations have for, formed a, um area of specialty each. So Scott runs our general insurance brokerage. Um, Jared heads our life insurance and does a little bit of KiwiSaver on the, uh, um, uh, in the business on the side, on the back of that. Um, I look after our kind of an investment business, KiwiSaver, and, um, and still do um, 
do quite a bit of life insurance. Um, but we're kind of like I'm at a stage in my life in my 60s where I'm more a farmer than a mm. hunter um, gatherer. So, you know, they, you work about 10 years either side of your age in this, in terms of your client base in this industry, it seems. So hmm. I've my client base is growing old with me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and so that was like I merged my business with Scott and Jared, um, what is it, three, four years ago now. Um, when my, um, my my previous business partner, who was older than I did, he he um, he um, sold and moved on on my own for a couple of years. Um, a, approaching sixty as a sole advisor wasn't a pretty picture, really, because you, you know you only know what you know, so you don't know what you don't know. And young people or younger people have a lot to offer. You have a lot to offer them. So, yeah, a merger of interests was actually probably one of the best things I did in my business at that point. Yeah. It's a it's a model that needs a shake up in a way. Like I either either being able to make make more to soak up the potential of taking on the risk of staff or fixing mm. the acquisition. Yeah. I think yep. the acquisition is the biggest challenge. But then it like it also turns into an incredible lifestyle business. Like I would I wouldn't I struggle to call it a business for some advisors, you know, the solo, mm. solo advisors, because it's a yep. job, you know, yep. they're tied into it. It relies solely on them. Yes. But then the requirements of the clients, the frequency of their communication isn't that much. You know, it's like, mm. especially investments, like don't touch it for seven years. We'll make sure the fund manager's appropriate and uh, we'll communicate with you because it's going to go up and down. So we need to make sure you stay on the course. But yep. there's not really much interaction. Um. So have you ever thought about best practice in terms of running a financial advisory firm or a, a way to shake up the model or mm. what have you been thinking about it over the years? Um, well, I guess not in revolutionary terms. Um, I mean, certainly uh, since I've joined Scott and Jared, we've, um, we've been looking more and more at um, how the technology in our space can help us yeah. and help our staff. Um, and that is with a very firm notion in mind that we provide the most benefit to our clients when we're in contact with them. And with the best will in the world, what the regulations did from 2010 onwards for those of us who went down the path of authorised financial advisors, etc., is actually it forced us away from our clients into this morass of paperwork. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it was all with the best intentions, etc. Mm. But you just spent so much time researching and crafting advice, and then doing all the administration afterwards to make sure everything's perfect for when whoever it is comes in to do an audit. That really, if I look over that last ten, over that ten years, we just saw fewer, fewer and fewer clients because you've only got so much time in the day. And so as we as we were approaching the new regime, which was going to bring everybody under that, um, there wasn't too much different there for us in terms of having to learn how relearn the business. It was actually the regulators getting more serious about the amount of time you need to be spending in front of your client because we because they they for whatever reason perceive that you're not doing that enough. So our question in terms of our business was, well, how do we do that? And so, you know, we've moved away in the last year um, uh, from a distribution group into another distribution group now on our own because when you, our feeling, and, and, and it won't be um, the same for everyone, but when you're in a large grouping, it's harder to make change fast because the change has to be debated throughout the whole national organisation and somebody <laughs> somewhere is um, being paid a large salary to slow it down and research everything. <laughs> um, so the revolution for us is we want it to be nimble. Uh, if the three of us have been in business long enough. I mean, you know, I've been 20 years. Jared's been 30-odd years. Um, he started as a very young man in business. Um, Scott's been at least 15 or 20 Um we know our business. We know what we want to provide. We don't have to rely on some bureaucratic person in a head office somewhere to actually think about the ideas that we're having. So the revolution for us is 
yep, we're on our own, then we need some good partners. So, um, you know, uh, a CRM, um, customer relationship management system in New Zealand, is absolutely um, integral to running your business efficiently. Mm. But there were none in New Zealand until recent times that really helped you. They were just... (laughs) databases it's like oh yeah if you want to dump name and address and a few notes here you go <laughs> yeah and we'll charge you a fortune for it and you sit there and say well how are you going to help me craft my advice and deliver it oh well, that's a good question mm. you know but we we researched and and um and have um uh, found a crm which we think helps um we've been using that for nine months now um and that's um it hasn't quite revolutionised what we've done, but it has actually meant that we work more with our clients mm. and less in the um, in the system. In the weeds. Yeah, because it's a it's a system that's been developed in New Zealand by New Zealanders for advisors in New Zealand, whereas a lot of our systems in the past have been kind of oh yeah, Australia's the big you know mm. pond. We'll just actually take their system and it and it. You know, only works about sixty percent effectively in New Zealand. Is it is it trail or what? Do you mind? Uh, oh, uh, um, give them a, a plug. No, the advisor platform. The advisor platform um, is who we uh, we looked at trail, and that um, is equally good. Okay. Um, what What do you like about? Because because um the reason I asked that the software I use is Go High Level, but it allows you to create templated customization. So mm. and give the CRM to advisors for free. So right. I, yep. I'd take on the cost. Yep. So it, it'd actually be cool to work out what makes it good, so I could like build it. <laughs> <laughs> but so up to you if you want to answer. But what, what's um, Mate. what's what do you like about or what was missing from the ones that you had? Well, Tap uh, the advisor platform, shortened to Tap, um, have built their platform around the advice process. Oh, yeah. So it begins and starts with the advice process. And so you bring a new client on or you're reviewing an existing client. Um, there's basically uh, a, um, a system advice in there, step by step, which allows you to follow that um, in a logical manner and collect the information that's, mm. that you're required to and also ensure that at the end of that process, all the documentation that should be there is there. And the record is there, and as a result, it actually the the client record builds from the advice process. Mm. Whereas in the past, like we use, I don't, I guess, don't mind, which because we still got it there. It's a legacy system. We've got X Plan, which, oh, yeah, which, yeah. which was an industry standard. It was, yeah. Um, that actually always felt to me like that was the other way around. It was like you put a whole lot of information in it about your client. Mm. Now try and make sense of it and actually build an advice process from that. And it was better than nothing. Mm. I mean, we built a business on that, but actually it just wasn't it, it just wasn't focused enough in terms of what we needed in New Zealand. Um, and so being able to actually just uh, uh, you know pick up a phone call, and actually start talking to a client and be able to um, immediately commence um, an advice process, even if it's only getting to the point where you're having that conversation and getting a scope of service out to them from your CRM and and the information that you've collected is just very easily input. Hmm. Bang. At that point, when you're coming um, to sit down and have a full fact-find meeting or um, with a client, you, you're already on the road to success. And so it's actually helping... Um, it is a templated process, I guess, but it's not locking you into a one-size-fits-all. It's it's actually ensuring that um, an advisor will come in and follow a logical, stepped process through the provision of advice, allowing him or her enough room to be able to personalise it, and then come out the other end not having to worry that the regulator has um, is going to have some problems with you at some point because... Basically, you've ticked all the boxes. Mm. And it gives you the opportunity to go, well, I'm not ticking this box because. Hmm. You know, because there's always, no, you know, nothing is ever the same. So, you know, I haven't done this because, I don't know, the advice process stopped, the person decided they didn't want to work with me anymore or something something else has happened. 
Interesting, yeah. So I, it's flexibility in the system that, that's yeah. required, yeah. And then follows the framework of what's expected of advisors. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think that, to me, that that's what I liked about it. It started at that point of, you've got a client sitting in front of you, let's go, mm. as opposed to, let's just collect a whole lot of information and hope that we get the right stuff, and then we can turn around and start thinking about asking the questions that we should be asking, yeah. or thinking about what we should be thinking. Yeah. You can see the pain of your experience coming through there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could tell you a story. Um it was prior to X plan. There was a it, it's the, when I first started. There was a uh, software program called Pro Planner, which was the <laughs> early early precursor to X plan. Very similar, but I um, I was sent to Australia uh, to train as a financial advisor for a couple of weeks. With um, we we were part of the AMP in those days, so we we're part of the AMP distributorship, and they did they were very good on training. Mm. So we go over there, and they um, and they teach us. Oh, yeah, here's Pro Planner, and this is how you conduct an interview with a client. Oh, okay, that's pretty cool. Um, you must do it that way. So, first week back in New Zealand, get a. Um, Nice appointment with a family out in South Auckland. Drove out there, 7 o'clock at night, of course. Mm-hmm. Uh, sit down. Right, I'm going to open this up and I'm going to ask you a whole lot of questions. And that's... hour and a half later, I've got all the information I need off them, but I don't know a damn thing about them in terms of their needs and their wishes and their goals, etc. <laughs> because all it is is, hey, how much is your house worth? How, what are your kids' names? <laughs> Oh, no. It was a terrible process. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. I used it once and decided <laughs> I'm not going to actually use that ever again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nah. <laughs> That'd be horrific. Hey, I don't care about what you actually want to achieve. I just want to know your, how much money you have. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me. It seemed to be this like if I collect all the information I know about you, somehow I'll work out that I can do something for you. Yeah, no. Nah. Yeah, yeah. So I'll was, tell you what you want. It's coming at it from the wrong sort of focus but but that was because it was driven by regulation in Australia that said you must have all this their regulations just nuts next crazy to yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah the qualifications it's not are... about the client there it's about well it's probably not true but everything I see out of Australia seems to be about having the right paperwork mm. um, the New Zealand regulation actually talks about does your client understand what you've just um, advised them to do which makes sense it's just hard to prove I don't quite know how we're ever going to prove it. Hopefully. Two blinks. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, oh, quite, do a test. Yeah, here's, here's a $100 bill. Just tell them that you understand. Yeah, you know, yeah. I don't know. I don't quite know how they will actually demonstrate that. But yeah, it makes you, at least having articulated that, it makes you sit upright as an advisor when you're finally giving that advice and looking at someone and their age stage and situation and going, Actually, is he looking back at me with a sense of understanding or is he looking at me like I'm some kind of bloody guru here who's just actually knows this wonderful science and he's just going to place his faith in me and go for the ride? Um, In which case the alarm bells are ringing. Um, Or is he actually going, actually, yeah, I get this, Dave. This is bloody good. We're in this together. Yeah. So it's a partnership, isn't it? Mm. Mm. Like where where I want advice to go, because the challenge I see is... Then that's why I exited, basically, because I was like, this model's broken at the moment, so, and I'm limited by how many people I can reach. Yeah. But so if we can fix the acquisition model, the attraction of staff in a profitable way, and then the next one is how do you deliver vice efficiently and effectively? And where I want to see it go is like, there's a new thing called Zoom AI Companion, and it got me thinking about what's possible. So Zoom, just the video conference thing. AI Companion is just... Uh, and AI interprets what's going on in the meeting and it sends you certain prompts, summaries. Someone can come in late to the meeting and say what's happened and it'll tell it, oh, it's done this and done that. Where I could see that going is like you're doing a consultation on Zoom and you have benchmarks training processes. So you teach the AI, hey, you need to ask these questions and you might get 30 minutes in, you're like, hey, normally best practice of these advisors from the starter is they would have asked about during a powers of attorney right now. Or Wills, have you checked that? Or they just mentioned that um, their sister is in a relationship and they're part owner of this house that you're just buying into. You might want to talk about the potential risk of relationship property if they would break up and the impact of your share in that, in that house. <clears throat> and then after the actual zoom consultation the transcripts pulled from it 
which is just notes, yep. pretty clean notes, 99% accurate. And then takes that and generates the draft of a statement of advice and calculations and four different scenarios of what they could do. And then what the advisor does is really just asking the right questions, helping give them peace of mind, and then their focus is being in front of clients. Hmm. That's like that's where I think it could go. Yeah, sign me up, mate. I'll, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll let you that. know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I might be able to play more golf if you do that, mate. Um, look, that would be great because um, yeah, um, you know, we we do a lot of advice in the modern world via the Zooms and the Teams. Yeah, um, we use Microsoft Teams, but it's all the same. Um, and uh, if there was a smart bit of software off the back of that that's helping you assimilate that because you know um i'm i'm very much a paper-based person i don't know whether it's my generation or whatever but if i'm having a zoom meeting with someone and they're giving me information about themselves whether it's actually um you know soft information or hard i'm making notes yeah now at the end of that conversation whether it's a half hour an hour or an hour and a half I've actually then got to go back and look at that those scribbled notes and go, God, Dave, you never were good at handwriting. You'd make a good doctor because I can't understand some of that, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and then I've got to put it all somewhere. I've got to enter it somewhere. So if you're telling me that there's a piece of AI that would eventually help do that, mm. um, it's not replacing the advice piece. It's enhancing it by just saving the time to go. This is this is what you've agreed with the client, or or this is this is the kind of solution that you're um, inferring. Here's some options now, Mister Advisor. Make some sense of this. It's probably just saved me half an hour to forty minutes of actually just typing notes and all sorts of rubbish in there. Yeah. Um, AI. We we're we're dabbling with it in our um, business. I'd love to have Zoom. What was it called? Zoom Assist. Zoom AI uh, Companion. Uh, if you want to look it up. Yeah, well, we've just had the the Microsoft, uh, what is it, the Bing um, oh, yeah. pop-up. Mm. And so, you know, we've got that down the side of the screen there. It's like, oh, okay. Uh, the other day I was just, oh, out of interest, um, out of these KiwiSaver providers, tell me what tell me what the best five-year return is on their balanced growth and whatever fun. Mm. You know, 10 seconds later, it's there. Yeah, it's crazy, yeah. yeah. It's like, oh, I'm going to go and check that. Yeah, yeah. You know, go and check it. Bloody hell, that's... That's bang on. Now, that would save, how long would it take me to go and Google, say, five or six of those to go and find that information to plug into an advice process? AI it's is great. It's really, uh, you know, um, I, I think it's, it's really helping. I'm looking at our young staff as well and thinking, oh, my, um, uh, my point of difference over the years is starting to, starting to disappear here. Oh, writing, yeah. Writing. Mm. Yeah, I was taught how to write in the 80s because I was doing um, uh, reports for, um, you know, um, financing of assets, et cetera. So I, I learned how to write. I, and so when I started in this industry and started writing advice, and I saw advisors around me who'd never had to do that before, they'd just basically put the application in front of you and said, here, Ryan, sign that. 100 grand of life should do you and a little bit of trauma. That was the way it was done, right? Mm. Um, now they're having to write it. And they would write what I called a stream of consciousness. And you'd read their advice and go, oh, my God, <laughs> really? <laughs> and I think, oh, well, at least my advice is something that I've crafted and, uh, and I understand how to present. Now these kids write their stream of consciousness, go into chat GPT, yeah, <laughs> make, it, make it better, and it comes out, and I go, bloody hell, that oh, is crazy. just awesome. Um, it's a great, it's a great um, talk. One weekend, I just um, we've done fifty minutes. By the way, we're almost oh, done, and we've talked about nothing. I know we've talked a lot of good stuff. Yeah, I um, one weekend I just sat down and just talked to a camera, and I wrote a book um, from ChatGPT, just interpreting my transcript and improving its punctuation make it it oh, wasn't that great in the end but it, like you think about what's possible mm. i published it too just to see <laughs> um but i think that's what might attract young people to the industry is like if, if mo the majority of their job is just spent in front of people like you were as a bank teller and solving their problems and then being supported in the infrastructure and it being remote so hey we're going to Thailand this week. Oh, you've got a client meeting at 2 p.m. Just make sure you're there. Blah, blah, blah. And then you go off, do your thing. Yep. And then 
also i think there might be an education component like like if say for example you are making content on social media that you don't use but you're educating them on the lives that you're changing and the impact of your life and what you're able to do and i think now and combine that with an acquisition and solving that problem because there's only what a few hundred advisors that provide financial planning in New Zealand, in my opinion, I don't know, maybe it's more or less. And there's what four million or whatever we're up to now. Yeah, people need it. They can't get it. They're, where's Dave? <laughs> he must charge millions of dollars. And they, oh no, I was unprofitable for twelve years. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I need to charge more. Yeah. Come and spend money. Um, yeah, no, look, I uh, I agree. I mean, it's. Um, there are there are many 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 financial advisors throughout New Zealand, and mm. they all specialise in different things. and And people need to be careful because it's a generic term. But the regulators um, force that upon us. Everybody who um, is registered as a financial advisor now is, has to use the term financial advisor. Um, so that's not going to help. So people need to look beyond that at what they you know who they're dealing with and their expertise etc um and there are many 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 good people in there that might not have anything other than than um, a lifetime of experience to be able to actually impart and there's nothing wrong with that but how do you actually as a consumer understand that when next um on the list might be someone who's got a raft of you know um uh, certificates from the best universities in the world. Does that make him or her better than this person? Mm. You have to go and meet them at that point, and actually, you know, this is—it's a relationship business. It's a people business. Don't get into it unless you like people, and unless you really want to make a difference in people's lives. I've met very, very few advisors in the what is it now? Twenty twenty-three. Twenty-three years coming up. Twenty-four years that I've been doing this job that don't want to make a difference in people's lives yeah. now they all bring different levels of expertise and so the key for the advisor is knowing at what point do i say to this client no i'm not the person to help you and and to me that's always been the most important um question on my mind when i first meet a client and i get to the end of that first meeting i'm gonna tell them this is what I can do for you, and this is how how the remuneration might run. Or, look, I'm sorry, actually, you're talking to the wrong person. I might be able to introduce you to someone who can help you, who might be, you know, they might be looking for more advice around property-specific advice, for instance, or they might be looking for a share broker. They might be looking for a uh, estate manager. Mm. Um, it's not me. You know, this is what I do. This is how I can help you. Um, maybe there's some components of what we've discussed I can do, but the rest of it I'm going to actually refer on mortgage broker or whatever. Um, I've seen a number of advisors who try to do everything, and that's where they get themselves in trouble. You have to know your limits. Mm. Um, you know, I know we're sitting in an office here of a guy who's got um, who's a very experienced um, advisor, and I would never try to touch on the part of the industry that someone like that is working in. He's working in a completely in a completely different field to me. He's doing the same stuff, mm. but it's just at a different level, with people with probably different needs that I'm not really geared towards helping. Mm. Um, so, you know, you have to know where you are at your place in the industry and what and who you're trying to do and where you're most effective. Okay, I see sales is caring more about they care about them caring more about them than they care about themselves. Yeah, yeah. and then also. Um, helping them make decisions and that decision could be no yes <laughs> your job yes. isn't to sell correct correct um and that's been a very hard model for people to make money out of in new zealand mm -hmm. because you know when i first came into the industry the only way you could get paid is to sell somebody somebody some something off the back of your advice yeah so there's a huge conflict yeah. there i mean it was quite funny when i first started i i almost quit the industry because one of the first things that confronted me is uh, say we were working um, in the AMP distribution network. Everyone was called a financial advisor, but everyone was rated on the sales ladder. Mm. Yeah, number one in the world, number one in New Zealand is you know Bob Smith. God, he's wonderful. He's sold 
you know, I don't know, millions of dollars of API <laughs> this year. It's the best since sliced bread. And I'd sit there and go, really, is that how you're judging me mm. on how much insurance I can sell? And yes, they were, because at the end of the day, AMP just had to make money. But I came into this and many others like me because we wanted to give advice. And it's taken the best part of the last 20 years with the help of regulation and, and, um, and advance in society's understanding around these things, I think for people like me to be able to make a living giving advice. We don't make anywhere near as much money as some of the guys when I came in in 2000 that had sold, for want of a better word, kind of peddling basic investment policies and life policies. That, you know, Some of the numbers that they told me about their remuneration that's crazy. In, the, in the 80s and 90s it was oh, just like stupid. really yeah. it was just you know it was, was stupid it yeah. was stupid we um, there's just no way you can make money like that now I mean you, the, the only reason they were making that money was off the off the back of the poor punter because they were being sold products which had huge commission flows and whatnot and then that there was no way these uh, they, they had a hope in hell of actually ever making money yet um, out of these products that had been sold to them because they were just so front-end loaded with costs. Um, I mean, I, I, I scratch my head and I look at it and go, wow, I can see why the regulators around the world... <laughs> come for us. I can see where <laughs> they come from because 20 years ago I could see it yeah, yeah. and we were we were all coming off the back end of that. I mean, it was getting hard at those days. Those guys, A lot of those guys were like, oh, no, it's all too hard now. Right advice. Never had to do that. Yeah. yeah. Well, I've been... I don't know how many you've called now. Probably everyone in Auckland, give or take. That not the same business twice, and there's so many just exiting, just purely because oh, it's too hard. Mm. And I'm like, if you're already if you're leaving now, like, and there was already a limit of people that was accessible to advice, I was just like, it's going to be a problem. Mm. The shame of that is that they've jumped to that conclusion because I don't think it is too hard. Mm. Um, it's just there's a little bit more discipline involved, but that's not hard. That's actually just life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no free lunch, is there, mate? No. If there was, we'd all be doing it. We'd have found it and we'd all be doing it. Well, it's crazy the bar, how low the bar is. So, for example, to use podcasting example, if you had a guess, so someone starts a podcast, they're all excited, how, what percentage of people give up by the third episode? So they've done, you've done one, and let's say you start the podcast and you do three more, what, do, what percentage of people do you think have quit by then? Oh, I don't know. I guess if you followed something like Pareto's principle, eighty percent have dropped off. Good guess. So ninety yeah. percent gone. Yeah. And then by the twenty seventh episode, you're down to only one percent left. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the competition, huh? Mm. Isn't that interesting? So consistently doing the same thing. Yeah, and so maybe that's why I'm here today because for some reason over twenty three years I've consistently done the same thing and I'm still doing it. Mm. Um. It's the longest I've ever stuck at any particular vocation. I mean, I've always been in the banking, finance, or insurance world, but it's the longest I've done the one thing. And I can honestly say that it's because it's probably been uh, the most fun ride I've ever had, not without its stresses, but I mean fun in terms of it's a great um, industry to work in because you do go home at night knowing that you've made a difference for people. Um, and so it's not just going home at night and going, yes, I made $10,000 today or whatever it was. Because, yeah, okay, that might feel nice when you do it. But that's not what drives people in this industry, um, not the people who survive long term. Oh, it's huge. Um, I remember stories. Greg would tell me about like uh, this lady. She was made redundant. She was unsure of what she was going to do. He did a financial plan like 20 years ago. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, you're fine. You don't have to work. You can work 10 hours a week and you'll be fine. And 20 years later, she's still working to it, you yep. know, 10 yeah. hours. Or I've been talking a lot of insurance. Like, I didn't know much about insurance. And uh, I, I was kind of in the camp of, eh, you know, I don't want to insure myself. Like, what's going to happen? You're that young, sort of yep. invincible. And then just hearing, you know, someone 23 to testicular cancer or some uh, family, one of the... The guy who was flying a plane and he just flew out into the sea and deliberately crashed, they oh, think, suicide. Yeah. And that left the family, mm -hmm. um, I think it was something like $900,000 mortgage. Ouch. And he was the income. So he's just gone. But then because he had life insurance, they were fine. Yep. So what do you think? 
drives you and the last last two questions so what do you what are you what are you most proud of throughout your career or stories that impacted you the most um well probably what i'm most proud of is in a global sense is that there's a business there with a whole lot of clients in there that know me trust me and keep coming back to me and so that tells me that i have actually achieved for them what i've been wanting to and that is to add value to their lives um in terms of individual stories you mean um Mm. insurance it's funny actually the first five years that i was in this trade and started to write insurance i could see uh, as i started as a mortgage broker and there were insurance guys around me and i got accredited in insurance and i felt that there was um, a role for people to do it properly rather than just selling it, <laughs> advising on it and putting it in properly. But I'll have to say that after f- the first five years, I started to doubt myself. And the reason for that is that I'd never had any claims. And I'd sit there and go, am I selling people something they don't need? Mm. Not long after that, the first trauma claim came in. And... Um, you know that was a that was a, a lady uh, breast cancer. Uh, you never forget your first claim. She was only in her um, late thirties, um, mortgage, um, basically self uh, a professional person, um, independent. Um, I the the amount of relief that she expressed when I walked in to her home that night um, to tell her that this amount of money was going to come from her trauma product and that should she um, not be able to work for a period of time, that this amount of money was going to come in monthly from the insurance plan that we'd put in place sort of four years earlier, which was costing her an arm and a leg in terms of her budget because she wanted to be safe. And so she believed in insurance. Um, At that point, I was there was absolutely no doubt in my mind that I was doing the right thing by all these people Um, because, you know, she went through her surgery successfully. Um, You know, uh, I think something like 150,000 fell into a bank account, which um, she didn't have to use, thankfully, because she didn't have any of the problems with the non-Pharmac-funded drugs. She was responding to the funded drugs. Mm. Um, And the income protection was there, which helped her for about six months because she was having a a, a bad reaction to the chemo, um, so she couldn't work because of it. Um, Sold. After that, I'm like, everybody needs trauma insurance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? And so I think that's the the key. I mean, I've, I've had so many claims I've forgotten them. But, you know, in terms of a more recent case on the other side, financial planning or um, et cetera, I've had a, um, a, a lady and her husband referred to me who were uh, more my age. Um, and he had just been um, diagnosed with terminal cancer. She was... Um, and um, he had basically run the finances, which is not completely atypical uh, 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 untypical I should say and so she was feeling extremely anxious Mm. and nervous about what happens when he's gone Mm. have I got enough am I going to be okay how does this work who am I going to be able to trust and he is reassuring us saying look we've got you're okay you're fine you're fine you're fine um, she needed reassurance from somebody that she was, and also she was looking for someone who might be able to help her. And um, over a period of uh, 18 months, I worked with them and wrote, wrote a financial plan for them to start with, wrote a, an addendum to that 12 months later when some things changed in their life. He finally passed away only three months ago, and she came to see me. And, you know, she um, is now a lady who absolutely knows financially what the next 10, 20 years look like in her life because of the work that we did together over that 18-month period. Now, um, I charged them a fee for that. It was, probably wasn't enough with the time <laughs> that I ended up spending, but I tell you what, I didn't care when, um, you know, the reward for me was when she came in, um, 
she actually brought her husband in to say goodbye to me before he died because at the end there they were they were they knew it was coming um that's the level of trust you end up building with people if you do your job properly yeah. now she'll be a client probably for the rest of the time I'm in this business and my business will probably support her beyond um, my time but yeah they're long run relationships but they're built on that you know that first um, uh, meeting and that level of trust and and how you can demonstrate that you care about them mm. um, now she'll ring me and, and the person who referred her to me is a, a, in a very similar situation a lady rings me about things which she probably shouldn't really <laughs> yeah. but you know I'm just someone now that she knows that oh, if I ring and ask Dave this he'd give me an answer uh, you know um, so uh, yeah yeah no I, I think it's just I think that's what I'm proudest of most is that people will pick up the phone and go Dave what do you think of this uh, mm. I was going to ask you about finance but I think that's a beautiful way to end mate yeah, it probably is, mate. <laughs> so thanks for coming on. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I can't believe an hour's gone already. <laughs> <laughs> you did well. You did well. Wow. Cheers, mate. Nice right. to meet you. <laughs> you <too. laughs>